The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. I'm a friend of Sarah Connor. I was told that she's here. Could I see her, please? No, can't see her. She's making a statement. Where is she? Look, it may take a while. I want to wait. There's a bench over there. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films and a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley-Shergy, and with me is my co-host, William Thrasher. Oh boy, I am really excited for this one. Yeah, this time around we're talking about a movie series that somehow we haven't covered in the 11 years we've done this show, and I'm not quite sure why. Uh, we're kicking off for a look at the Terminator series, with the first movie in the series called, not surprisingly, The Terminator. Um came out in 84, directed by James Cameron, produced by Gail Ann Hurd, written by James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd. This starred Arnold Schwarzenegger, Michael Bean, Linda Hamilton, and Paul Winfield. With music by Brad Fidel, cinematography by Adam Greenberg, and edited by Mark Goldblatt. And this this is a fascinating movie in a couple of, a couple of ways, but something that occurred to me... Uh, while uh, doing some research for this episode, uh, is that when most people think about Terminator, they're thinking about Terminator 2. And something right. about about my experience with this movie um, is that it, before Terminator 2 came out, the Terminator was a movie that only a handful of sci-fi nerds remembered or enjoyed in any way. Uh, and then when Terminator 2 came out, the whole world decided it loved this movie. <laughs> Or at least the idea of this movie. Yeah, with the Terminator, I guess my relationship to the franchise, um, I had just moved back to the United States in the early 90s, I guess, and Terminator 2 had just come out on video cassette. And our neighbors said, oh, Terminator, it's amazing. We hadn't heard of it, uh, so whatever reason. So we rented Terminator 2, and then we went back and saw the first one after the fact. Um yeah, so what you said lines up exactly with me. Uh, what about, uh, when was the first time you watched the original Terminator? I I must have seen it, like, on on cable in the, uh, in the 80s. But I, I don't think I ever saw it, like, from beginning to end until the 90s. Oh, wow, okay. So, like, around the time, before, to catch up for Terminator 3, maybe, or... Oh no no! Just just that it was it, this this was a, a late night cable uh, kind of perennial favorite, and I would sometimes catch snippets of it. This is also the kind of movie my mom wouldn't let me see, so <laughs> I, I would never have had the opportunity to have seen it from beginning to end until the nineties, uh, when nobody cared what I was watching anymore. Oh, I see. Yeah, no, I mean my family they would we would always watch R rated movies as a family from when I was very young. And I think it's just huh. because my dad didn't want to watch little kids cartoons. And so he's like, well, my kids are smart. You know, this isn't real, right? Okay. Let's watch silence of the lambs or whatever it is. <laughs> so, um, but the Terminator, I think, you know, although it's R, I would not call it a hard R. 
Uh, you have the say fuck a few times and there's some blood, but by today's standard, uh, I think it's a pretty mild R. Would you say that's true? I, I suppose so. I mean, there is there is a, a sex scene, but it's yes. not. It's it's framed in such a way. It's the most chaste sex scene I think I've ever seen uh, in an '80s sci-fi action film. Yeah, with the blue lighting, it it makes me wonder if the multiple sex scenes in um, the cult film The Room are not an homage to the Terminator sex scene. <laughs> lots of butt. Um, well, there's lots of butt in this movie too. Yeah, yeah, that's true all around. Yeah, uh, and with the Terminator. Um, it's worth talking a bit about James Cameron. I don't think we've, we've talked about him too much on this program. Uh, because, I mean, really, this is... Well, he, I mean, he did Aliens, but other than that, you know, he hasn't really done franchises besides The Terminator. And then Avatar is going to get, like, seven sequels or whatever. Um, and uh, do you know much about James Cameron, how he started out? He was a truck driver in Canada originally. Yeah, but then he ended up falling in uh, with Roger Corman's crowd. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he did some editing, cut some trailers, helped with some effects work, and then uh, as a director, uh, got the started with the fir- the feature film Piranha Two: The Spawning, and he got uh, fired and, from that. Yeah, and then it, then it's just a a rocket ride to the top right after that because you got Terminator, then you got Aliens, uh, then you've got The Abyss. Then you got Terminator 2, True Lies, uh, Titanic, nothing but hits really all through uh, up through uh, the 90s. And uh, also uh, a writer on Rambo 2. Yeah, I've actually read his uh, Rambo 2 screenplay and it's much different. It's sort of a buddy film and originally John Travolta was going to play the number two, but then Stallone wisely decided Rambo is more of a loner uh, apart from his relationship with... um, Troutman. Troutman, thank you. Uh, mm. So uh, it, it got heavily rewritten, but like it, some of the action stuff is the same. But you, you have all these weird jokes where, like, uh, I think the guy Rambo rescue. Oh, what is it? Rambo. Um, I can't remember. So Rambo's like in prison after that first movie, First Blood, right? On the I chain would hope game. So. <laughs> and uh, yeah, after shooting up a suburb, uh, a town out in the mountains, and um. When he's with uh, his John Travolta, John Travolta co-star, um, there's all these like lines of dialogue where like I don't know if they're talking to POWs or Rambo or whatever, but it's like, oh yeah, this is like Star Wars, and he's like, what Star Wars? Oh, you're gonna love it. Like there, it's all these weird, um, jokey. It, it does not feel much like Rambo at all. Uh, but I mean, some of the action scenes really were lifted from that, and James Cameron did get a credit. Um, uh, on the screen for uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2, which is a pretty wieldy title. Um, but that, that is something I wish more sequels did, is go for a completely different tone from their mm-hmm. predecessors. I can only think of one other example, and that's the difference between Swamp Thing and Swamp Thing 2. I mean, when you mention movies that have uh, the sequels have different tones, I think of some of the Child's Play uh, movies. Yeah, they do get sillier as they go along. Yeah, get, they typically get sillier. Uh, and... Um, I would argue even Terminator, like they, they, although it's science fiction, they go for slightly different tones um, of what's happening. I mean, this this original Terminator is almost like a slasher film, really. You know, in a way, it is, and I, I think I think it's it's fantastic the way it's done. But I would I would love as an experiment to recut this movie so it's all from Sarah Connor's perspective, and it is like and it is done as a slasher movie. 
Yeah, um, Bethesda Softworks, which uh, now they're known for doing like the Elder Scrolls Skyrim games, mm-hmm. uh, they ha- on the computer did a lot of Terminator games, but they only had the license for this first movie. And the original one was a movie tie-in called The Terminator, and it was uh, for the time ahead of its time, kind of like first-person perspective, 3D graphics, like Doom or something. But you could either play as Kyle Reese or the Terminator, and your only uh-huh. goal was to get rid of the other person. But you had this big sprawling city you could explore. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so a bit of trivia there. Um, and yeah, the Terminator was inspired by James Cameron having a nightmare where he saw the exoskeleton uh, in a ball of flames. And he, he was also a painter, so he painted that, and that sort of inspired the script. Um, and he wrote it with the producer, Gail Ann Hurt, and I believe they were married for a bit, but then later then he had a relationship with Linda Hamilton and so forth. Um, and I, I just like how lean and mean this movie is. This movie doesn't have an ounce of fat on it. Well, you you can tell there's there's a, some of that like Corman influence. Every dollar is on the screen, uh, and certain and like there's a couple of shots and props and things that get recycled, but in very efficient ways. Where if you're not paying a ridiculous amount of attention to the film, you'll never notice that you're seeing an effect shot be reused. Yeah, and there's uh, some good miniature work as well in stop motion. I mean, it's a good showcase for what special effects were like uh, in the 80s. And um, we'd be neglecting ourselves if we did not mention the Harlan Ellison connection with this film. Yeah, so there was... um, So so one of the things about, about... Cameron is when you when you watch a James Cameron film, you can often see his influences on the screen. He he borrows heavily uh, from from his influences, and this the whole reason there's this Harlan Ellison connection, uh, and no one would have known about this if if uh, Cameron hadn't mentioned it. But you may notice as the credits, the closing credits of the movie start, this card comes up that says acknowledgement to the works of Harlan Ellison, and the reason that is. Uh, is because James Cameron gave an interview for, I think, Starlog magazine around the time this um, came out. And he had said that two of his influences for The Terminator were two episodes of The Outer Limits, uh, Soldier and Demon with the Glass Hand, both of which were time travel stories. Uh, Demon with the Glass Hand being about a guy who travels back in time to the present day and is being beset by assassins who are also from the future. And this guy doesn't know it yet, but he's the guy that's going to save the human race in the future. Uh, And then Soldier is about two soldiers from a future war who fall into the modern day and one of the soldiers decides, well, I don't want to fight anymore because the war is not happening. And the other soldier is saying, oh, no, we're going to fight. We're going to finish this war now. And it's just you and me. And it's this kind of this back and forth manhunt. And anyway, in the interview, he said that those were two big, uh, two big influences of him because there was, those were things that he would that you know he used to watch on TV all the time. Well, the interview found its way to Harlan Ellison and, you know, Harlan Ellison. So he sued James Cameron and. I believe uh, for copyright infringement because Harlan Ellison wrote the story Demon with a Glass Hand um, and considered the this interview an admission of outright plagiarism. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it was settled out of court, which is why that title card appears in the movie. And I believe a version of that title card is required to appear in every Terminator franchise product. So you think his estate got a cut of the uh, sequel money? Well, he, I, 
I think as part of the set now again this is all hearsay. Yep. I believe as part of the settlement that title card was added to the movie and all the sequels. Uh and I I suspect he was paid a sum, but that wouldn't give him a cut of any of the money. He would have just collected that sum. So it would be a flat probably a flat sum with that a, f- a flat with, settlement with the fee, title yeah. card. I see. Okay. Cool. Um yeah, the Terminator. Uh, I also wanted to point out with James Cameron, with his relationship with his movies and groundbreaking special effects, in a way he reminds me of George Lucas, uh, in that he doesn't do a yeah. whole lot of movies, but every one he does has like a big special effects push of some kind. And uh, the Terminator did not like debut new special effects or anything, but it's a very good showcase for a lot of different effects. Well, it's it's... Interesting, because as you as you go further along in Cameron's filmography, that is something you see is that every movie he does introduces some new special effects technique that the next movie will be based around. Um, so, for instance, The Abyss used a lot of CGI, particularly for this like liquid tentacle. Well, those liquid CGI modeling effects, that's what Terminator 2 is completely based on. But Terminator 2 also introduced some other CGI things, uh, which were used in Titanic, which introduced some composite, some digital compositing techniques, which it kind of goes up the chain until you hit Avatar, which was his most... With that whole movie from beginning to end is one massive special effect. Exactly. And um, along with George Lucas, James Cameron, where he was one of the first uh, proponents of digital uh, filming on digital as opposed to film. And now you go to a movie theater, all you see is digital projections pretty much, right? Uh, yeah, I, the, the only, the only theater, the only theaters I know of that still project film are, are typically independent and art house theaters. And even they usually have a digital projection option. What's your feeling on film versus digital? And then we'll get back to the Terminator. A lot of it, a lot of it comes down to intent. Um, in a lot, in a lot of ways, I like film because of the graininess and the grittiness. There's something... There's something about the way film catches the light where it can make the fantastic look real and possible. Um, you have to do so much treatment to make something shot digitally look real. Yeah, that's the, I guess that's the irony. Uh, if, if you shoot something on digital but don't process it, it looks fake. Digital can make reality look fake. Where film, it's film is is the opposite. Uh, but you know, with depending on depending on your intent, you can still make that work for you. Like the um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of some like off the top of my head. I'm trying to think of some some good examples. But like, well, I guess like with 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 James Cameron, like I can't imagine Avatar being shot any other way other than digital. Uh, you know that 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 uses a high definition digital camera really really well. Uh, but damned if I don't love all the, the, the texture that's on the film for Terminator. I like digital more, I think, especially as the resolution has increased, because you can, um, there's just so much of a cost savings. Uh, but I, I think at the end of the day, it is like, you know, painters might uh, paint with oil or watercolor, and filmmakers, you know, might do it on film or digital. I think it's another tool in your toolbox, and at the end of the day, it's how you use it. Yeah, I guess, I guess... A much shorter version is, I think, horror always looks better on film. Oh, interesting, because it's grittiness, huh? That, that's that's a part of it, yeah, yeah. and just the f- flexibility of the lighting. Right. Um, 
So the Terminator opens with a, a sequence in the future, and there's less of these sequences in the movie than I remembered there being. But they're so they they do so much with such like little screen time of this future setting. Kind of you get a, a title uh, sort of card sequence that explains the premise briefly, although it's a, a bit confusing if it's your first time watching the movie. And then <laughs> and then you see in the future where there's uh, the wonderful uh, close up. Dutch angle shots of the the, ske- the piles of human skeleton heads, and uh, these uh, uh, what is it like the hunter killer um, flying ships and the and these sort of tanks and, and robots running around and humans are are trying to fight against them and there's explosions and smoke and lasers and it's just uh, wonderfully uh, imaginative. It's it's real it's really bombed out and it fe- and it feels like like wa- watching this movie it's it's like. It's like you're watching a war film that takes place in a bombed out city in Europe, like right after the bombing. It's just it's so desolate and stark. And I love that robotic tank that goes through this this scene Um, that 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 whole thing worked. Like it, it, it is a functioning prop. It's remote controlled. The gun turrets move. Uh, The tank treads work. Actually, what's what's really neat is that is a. Uh. That uh, prop, the tank, ended up finding its way into Bob Burns' uh, Hollywood prop collection, and the whole oh, okay. thing, the whole thing is uh, about I think just over three feet tall. I mean, it's a very sizable remote-controlled device, um, and I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, when Terminator Two was made, Cameron went to Bob Burns to get that same prop back for some of the future shots in Terminator 2. Well, yeah, it looks great. Uh, when I watched it, it reminded me of playing the arcade game of Terminator 2, uh, where you had the machine guns mounted, uh, and um, the first few levels are, are just like the beginning of the original Terminator, um, kind of setting up the story, even down to the detail of, in the background, you see like a truck driving, and there's a gun mounted on the back of the truck. One of the levels in that video game is your defending the guy um, who, who's on the back of the truck shooting off the, the uh, ships flying towards him. Hmm. So with the, I mean, with the Terminator, this you have this beginning and then it goes uh, into present day. And uh, as we mentioned, it very quickly sets up the premise that you have two people in the present day setting from the future. You have the Terminator played by Arnold Schwarzenegger and you have um, Kyle Reese played by Michael Bean. And if it's your first time watching this movie and you somehow have not seen any of the sequels, I, I think it's meant to set up that you're not sure who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. You know, I could I could totally see that because uh, I, I think I think you can pick up that Schwarzenegger's the bad guy only because he's so brutal right off the bat. I mean, when uh, there's that there's the infamous "Give me a close" scene where you know Schwarzenegger appears. He you know he he time warps into modern day Los Angeles uh, and he's completely naked and he goes up to some punks and he ends up uh, killing them all and taking their clothes. Whereas Kyle just ends up stealing pants from a homeless guy. Like right off the bat, that tells you who's who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Well, and also Kyle is more stealthy after that. You know the cops are chasing him and he's hiding out at the department store in the mall and uh, oh yeah, and stealing clothes off the rack as he goes. Yeah, and then he steals a. A shotgun from the uh, the cop car. Yeah, I mean, it's... Talk about, you know, character development with no dialogue. 
and contrasting of scenes. You know, they, they both have the same objective. They're trying to uh, not be naked <laughs> as they're uh, warped into the 1984 present day. And we see very oh. quickly... Yes. Well, actually, you, you, so you mentioned the nakedness. And this is another thing that's fascinating about this movie. There is more male nudity in this movie than female nudity. Correct. And it's and it's very neat because it's not it's not sexualized nudity, um, but it does it does communicate a kind of vulnerability. Uh, you know, these two people being set into the past with no resources whatsoever. It's both an intriguing visual, but it also is still part of the story. It makes them it makes them seem as desperate as they truly are. It reminds me of a classic Paul Linda joke from Hollywood Squares. They're asking, the audience is asking, uh, in what, what state was Lincoln born? And uh, Paul Lind responds, oh, the same state all of us are, naked and screaming. <laughs> well, which actually the film har- harkens back to, because at one point Kyle is uh, describing, trying to describe what time travel is like. And he's like, well, I guess it's, ki-, and after fumbling for words, he's like, well, I guess it's kind of like being born. Right. And it's uh, right there. And we can see that Arnold Schwarzenegger is trying to get rid of Sarah Connor, um, but he has to find which Sarah Connor. And I love that detail that you have uh, Linda Linda Hamilton as the main Sarah Connor in the film. She is a a, a young woman, I guess, in her, her 20s, it looks like, with that, that 80s teased out hair, working at a bar. And, well, she's, uh, she's working at a diner. She's oh, a at a diner. Yep. That's right. She goes to the bar at, at night. Um and something this movie does that I that I love is it it gets us it gets us on her side really quick. And one of the ways it does that is by having her deal with customer bullshit at a diner. Yeah, and, and the detail of um, what she spills a drink on a guy or something, and then uh, there's a little kid in the booth next to him, and uh, she, the little kid takes a scoop of ice cream and plops it in her in a pocket in her uh, apron. No, that is that is not ice cream. That is sherbet. And if you can't tell the difference between the two, uh, we are going to have words. I guess that'd be a good colorblind test, right? Because there's a lot of color <laughs> in sherbet. Is this ice cream or is it sherbet? Yeah, that, that should be the new test. Instead of looking at the 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 dots, and can you see the number sixty four in there? With the red on top of the green. But uh, yeah. Oh, uh, oh it, but something else that I think is is great about uh, about Sarah Connor's introduction. There, there's lots of dialogue that has double meaning because this is a movie about time travel. There's lots of like little things that connect to the theme of time travel. Like for instance, when her friend, who's the other waitress at the diner, is like, "Hey, think about it this way: in a hundred years, who's gonna know?" Exactly, and, and like, like, yeah, like she's gonna be a part of history in a hundred years, or like later when. Um, Sarah Connor and her roommate uh, slash friend are getting ready for for their their dates. Uh, Sarah Connor is wearing a bootleg Jetsons t-shirt. Yeah, it has the wrong color um, hair on one of the characters, and, and is and the Jetsons logo is conspicuously absent. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a, all a nice detail, and uh, even the, um, the 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 humor helps too. You get the the pervert stuff with uh, Sarah Connor's roommate's boyfriend calling for phone sex and uh, it's Sarah Connor that answers, you know, not the girlfriend. 
and Sarah Connor, Sarah just kind of lets lets the dialogue spool out uh-huh. before her, uh, yeah. getting her roommate. But what I love is when her roommate grabs the phone, he starts over from the beginning, like he's been rehearsing this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell this script must have had a lot of drafts to it because just every line just seems so polished. It's it's just what's needed. I mean, especially if you're studying like like editing or structure or something. I think this is a great film to to study for those purposes. Well, and um, also it it's enter- it gets us on those characters' sides because they're they're going to all meet some pretty horrible fates, and those fates have impact because because we have we we have now a connection with them because of these characterful moments. Um, but the Terminator, after you know getting his punk clothes, he's just going through the phone book. He looks up every Sarah Connor in Los Angeles, and is just killing them off one by one in the order that they are in the phone book. And I want to give a so, so, so something. This movie is full of hey, I know that that actor, and the first Sarah Connor that he kills, who is credited in the credits, I believe, simply as Wrong Sarah is uh Marianne Mullerly, uh who is who who played the character Norma on the soap opera we love to mention on this podcast, Passions. Well there you go. It's always a passions connection somewhere, I suppose. Uh I mean that's really something and then and then you know you have kind of the, the horror of uh, the main Sarah Connor goes to work, and they and her friends are like, "Oh, check out on the news!" And it goes, "Sarah Connor has been killed," and the and, and and so she can tell, like, and as she goes to different places throughout her day and into the evening, uh, more and more Sarah Connors are being killed, and so she she has a real state of paranoia about her. She's looking uh, out through the window of a club she's in. She sees Michael Bain walking around, pacing around outside. Uh, it, it it's a good moment but man i mean that first confrontation between the terminator and michael bain and uh kyle reese rather and sarah connor's just in the middle oh at the uh, tech noir club yes with all the neon lighting and the flashing lights and the black and the darkness it's just so so iconic so well done that this is a club I would love to go to. Like if if I had if I had a budget, I would love to like make a recreation of this club and just make it a perpetual eighties night. This looks like such a fun place to be in. Yeah, and you could name different drinks like the T eight hundred, the T one thousand, the TX. <laughs> uh, They're all made with tea or tequila. That's it. Those are our only ingredients. Oh, tequila. Yeah, I think that's what you have to do. The T eight hundred is well tequila. <laughs> Oh, but another Hey, It's That Guy is the classic Hey, It's That Guy, Dick Miller. Yeah, so, um, of course, these characters need to be outfitted with weapons, and the Terminator uh, goes to a, a gun shop, which, of course, makes sense, and he is at, he knows his shit, but, like, he, as he demos all the different guns, he uh, says he wants all of them. <laughs> And, oh and, yeah, and Dick and, Miller's kind of explaining. Okay, well, there's a there's a ten day waiting period on all on the handguns and the semi automatics, but you can take the rifles today. And he says, "I guess I'll close early today because he's going to be." But then you feel real bad for him because the Terminator just shoots him because, of course, he has no money and, and just takes the gun. But at the end, that the Terminator is asking, like, "Do you have a plasma repeating rifle with laser sight?" <laughs> Which is kind of a fun bit of science fiction dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I and I love that that Dick Miller's just kind of like befuddled, but he just wants to close the sale. 
Well, do you know what part uh, Schwarzenegger was originally meant to play in this movie? Was he supposed to be Kyle? Yeah, and that would have been terrible. Yeah, I, I, I well, who the hell was going to play the Terminator then? O.J. Simpson. Oh my God! You didn't know that, yeah? No, I did it, not know that. Yeah, that's a, a famous piece of Terminator lore. And um, had that happened, uh, we would not have seen a Terminator two. And that's nothing against uh, the mediocre acting skills of O.J. Simpson. Uh, but also Schwarzenegger, his his acting works, I think, good for a particular kind of part. And um, it's not just because of the his, his accent, but dialogue is not his strong suit. And to give him a part in The Terminator, where he has, you know, probably less than 100 words the whole movie, it just makes it more imposing. It's like Boba Fett, right? The less you have him talk, the less you explain of his backstory, the more threatening he is. And, and, and also, you know, keeping in mind this was the beginning of his acting career – all of the things that would otherwise be kind of flaws in a performance only make the Terminator seem more mechanical and more alien. Well, when he did a good job of, of working on his body movements to get the stiff turns of the head and the neck, and before this he did Conan the Barbarian, which he had uh, a lot more dialogue and so forth, and that was another great leading man part. But the, there's something about uh, the Terminator, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, physically was, was probably in his prime, um, still, you know, just coming off his bodybuilding days. Uh, it, it's just an imposing presence. Even that poster is so classic with him with the big sunglasses. Oh yeah. And that's kind of another thing. Cause like the, the Terminator with the sunglasses, uh, and the red eye and the leather jacket, that is the iconic look. And it is past the halfway point of the movie that he actually gets that iconic look, which is assembled piecemeal throughout the film. Uh, yeah, and um, I mean, really, after the two characters, you know, uh, face off, and then uh, Cal Reese takes uh, Sarah Connor with her and, and it kind of explains more of the plot, the rest of this movie is is really kind of like one big chase scene. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a, a, a lot of, a lot of back and forth, them getting cornered by the Terminator, them escaping. Uh, there's a great extended uh, car chase where uh, the Terminator's in a stolen police car uh, and is trying to run uh, Kyle and Sarah Connors down, which ends in a great crash and Sarah being taken into police custody, Kyle being arrested, and the Terminator is you know completely gone. Uh, he'll be he'll be catching back up with him later. But when the Terminator launches his assault on the police station, I mean that's just brutal. Oh God, no! Yeah, well, so that so that's that's something. So all these all these images have always been sort of shocking and horrific. But as and and not not to drown this podcast in a a, a tide of despair, but the events the events in these this this film seem more and more plausible uh like every, every day in this this era of mass shootings uh and white nationalist terrorism that we live in uh right i mean you know when you watch something it, it historically or its context uh, changes with time all of the movie itself hasn't changed and yeah I, there was a time when such things could just be popcorn entertainment i think now it just takes on a different level and that um that those massacres keep happening, uh, particularly in the United States. Although recently there was the one in New Zealand at the Muslim um, center. Uh, at the mosque, the mosque. Thank you. In um, Christchurch. Yeah, uh, it's just horrific, and 
awful. Um, but I, you know, in some ways I think that makes this played more like a horror movie uh, watching it this time around. Um, well, just well, it's... with the violence, it tries to go for more realism and matter of fact, and it doesn't go overboard with the blood in a Fangoria way. And it keeps it, you know, they don't, when people die, they don't give impassioned speeches. The movie just keeps on moving. Well, I mean, it's, it's, vi- it's violence with consequences. Yeah. Uh, as it should be. Um, so with, um, how oh, do you this, feel about, we talked about the, the police station. What do you think about some of the actors that play the cops? We have Paul Winfield and, um, Lance Henriksen. Oh, they, they are great. Like, well, the, well, the funny, the funny thing is they are, they are so good, uh, as, uh, Ed Traxler and, uh, Hal Vokovich that like, I, I would kind of love to see, a sequel to this, which is just this movie retold from their perspective. Yeah, I mean, nowadays that would be like a spin-off TV show, right? Uh, but I yeah. mean, cause they 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 work well together. They give great performances. I mean, they they do seem they do seem like two two law enforcement officers who have been working together for ages. But I just also just love for like because like from their perspective, they're investigating an emerging serial killer. And in fact, there's even that bit. Well, what do we call him? The phone book killer? Because it does finally occur to them that he's killing all the Sarah Connors in order in the phone book. Right, and this the, the beleaguered nature that, you know, this is their job to investigate the things. Oh, I thought we just put away one of these crazy people last week, right? Like, they just think it's uh, a, a human that's crazy. Little do they know it's much more than that. And, and Lan- they're, they're in over their heads very quickly. And Lance Henriksen, um, I, I just love the way his face looks. It's just so, it's like a, a nice, long, tired <laughs> face. That uh, It's the face that would earn him his part in Millennium. Yes, and... Um, I mean, of course, in, in Aliens, he was the, the robot in that. And uh, Bishop, right? Yeah. Yeah, Bishop, well, yeah, Bishop the synthetic organism. Uh-huh. And uh, it's just, he's been in a lot of James Cameron movies. He's he's been, I, I think you look at the acting credits of Lance Henriksen, I, I bet it's over 300, like, movies or TV shows he's been in. Like, he, well, he's, he's another that guy. Yeah, he's he's that guy. He's, he's a working <laughs> actor. I was even surprised to see uh, him quite young in Dog Day Afternoon. I was watching that on Amazon Prime recently, an excellent uh, Al Pacino movie from the uh, 70s. And uh, and he's in that as um, an FBI agent or something towards the end. But he, he's an actor that, like, even when he was young, he looked kind of old. And so... <laughs> yeah. But he, he's kept himself in, in shape. So, I mean, he's aged very well. But it just seems he, he always looks... Uh, it, it just works so well for the character. It, he looks like a man that has seen a lot in his life. Well, it's like him and him and Paul Winfield. They're both great that guy actors. I also do want to uh, give a shout out to Earl Bone as Doctor Peter uh, Silberman, who is the criminal psychologist who's brought in to take a statement from Sarah, and then who later uh, later interrogates Kyle and is trying to piece together his quote unquote delusion. I really like his performance. Like I, I completely buy him as a criminal psychologist. He has, he has the level of detached smugness that, that I regrettably, I have come to expect from some people in the psychological profession. Right. It's that adds some like humor to the scene, but also it makes you think like, well, what if she really is crazy? Like, I don't know. Like it, it kind of plants a little bit of a doubt. 
in well, the Well, that's the kind of interesting thing because, you know, we see, we see a lengthy interrogation with him and Kyle where uh, we get some of the exposition uh, in the film. But then later, you know, we have... Uh, we have uh, Dr. Silberman talking to Traxler and uh, Vukovic uh, and Sarah Connors in another room. And he's like, exp- he's explaining what makes Kyle's supposed delusions different from other people with delusions. Um, to the point where like, you think somebody would pick up on the fact that that should clue them in that they're not delusions because they don't fit a, they don't fit a delusional pattern. Do you have any thoughts on the score by Brad Fidel? I like it. Like that, it, the, mu- yeah, the music only theme. comes in when it needs to be there, uh-huh. and it's it's got this it's got a sort of a bare bones mechanical feel, and the Terminator that that Terminator theme is iconic. Like it's it's it ranks up there with like the themes from Star Wars and Rocky with me. It is one of those classic musical stainers and it part of it sounds a little dated it's all synthesizer right but it um it works in creating that kind of oppressive mood that the film has a lot of it is at night a lot of it is people on the run um and the music just helps to to heighten those uh those sequences um and uh, i mean james cameron the directing is is quite good. I'm really fond of the transition he uses where Kyle Reese is just, uh, it's near the beginning of the film, but he's resting in in a truck and he gets jolted because um, he's near kind of a construction zone and he looks at the construction outfits and he starts having PS, uh, PTSD flashbacks oh, yeah, of him in the some, future. Cause they're we both, get some glimpses. They both have the treads on them and so forth. And I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um yeah, I mean Michael Bain. Why wasn't he a bigger star? I don't because I think he's good here. He has a lot of vulnerability. Um, it's a tough part to play because it's called the Terminator, right? It's not called it's not called Kyle Reese. Uh, but he... so okay, I have to ask ask okay. you something. I think one of the reasons why I buy Kyle Reese as a guy from the future is that his name is Kyle. Um, do, do you do you credit this movie with the prevalence of the name Kyle? Because I know um, I, I the, hmm. everyone I know named Kyle was born in the eighties after this movie came out. Yeah, it could be. Uh, the one I see a lot of people naming their kids after is um, Logan from Wolverine. Huh. I see a lot of little kids named Logan. Um, I, I should rephrase that. I'm living with my six year old nephew, so if his friends are over, you know, there's usually one of them named Logan. So that's my frame of reference. I don't know a lot of little kids. <laughs> It's uh, it's the Chad of its day. Oh, Chad! Uh, that's that's an '80s name too, isn't it? Yeah, I like the uh, oh. bit of mm-hmm. trivia that um, I don't know if it's real, but I like to hope it is that, <laughs> that Dorothy was a name invented by Frank Oz for the Wizard of Oz. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to look into that. That's fascinating. It, it, fascinating if true. Uh, I do definitely want to look into that. Oh, so you, you mentioned the glimpses of the future. I really like the glimpses of the future we get, and I like that they, I like that they sort of art artfully bring information into this movie that we, the audience, need to know. I mean, there's a great, there's a great bit where um, we see this sort of these human survivors living in a bunker that is 
full of just some great imagery, like the people catching rats to to feed on. Uh, there's a wonderful bit where. You know, he, as he's walking down a corridor, we see a bunch of people huddled around a TV and lights on their faces like they're watching TV. Then the shot reverses. They're warming themselves on a fire that's in the TV. I'm, that is yeah, such that, a creative image. It's a nice touch. Um, but then it also sets up that they keep dogs with them because the dogs can tell if you're not human. Sure. Which comes up later in the film. Uh, I do think you know these future sequences are, are so imaginative it's a real shame that in the four soon to be five sequels to this movie uh that we've had in in over 30 years um that only one of them has spent significant time in the future hmm yeah and from and i have not seen all the sequels but yep. from the, the ones that i have seen never come close to being this visually inventive when showing the future of Earth. Oh, certainly, right. E- even the future stuff that we'll talk about next week in Terminator 2, I don't think it's as good as what you see in this first one. Yeah. But um, we get, uh, but you know, when we get the infamous sort of I'll be back line, which I, that's the line that everyone loves to quote, but the the thing that I love about it is in its original context in the film, it's just very matter of fact. The Terminator wants to get into the police precinct. He's to see Sarah Connor. He's told he can't because she's giving a statement. And he says, "Well, you're welcome to wait." And, go, and he going looks around. I'll be back. And he just leaves. It's it's so matter of fact. It is so not a quotable line <laughs> as it originally appears. But it does it does throw you off when he drives the car to the police precinct. But during the chaos, Kyle and Sarah escape. They hide out in a motel, which has a dog chained up out front, which will become significant. This is when we get the last of the exposition. We kind of learn more about about what Kyle knows about Sarah Connor, what, uh, why he volunteered to, to travel back in time. We also get something which which I always it's a detail I always forget that the character of Kyle is a virgin. Hmm. And they don't, they, and it's stated matter, matter of factly, and I and I always feel that the implication of why he's a virgin uh, is because he does not want to bring a child into his horrible future world. Now, can you refresh my memory? Does um does Kyle Reese go into the past knowing that he's going to be John Connor's father? That he's going to sire a son with Sarah. It is. It is unclear. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say they never. They never flat out state that. Yeah. But they. They do. They do state that he. He has feelings for Sarah Connor because. Uh, because uh, John Connor, the leader of the uh, future human resistance, who it turns out Sarah's destined to give birth to and train, um, he has feelings for her. Uh, I think the implication. What I, what I take from this is that John Connors knows that Kyle is going to be his father, but I don't think he tells Kyle this, but he sets Kyle up for it because mm. there's a big thing where Kyle says, you know, I have this, he gave me a picture of you and it's just you and you're strong and you look kind of sad and I don't know why, but we do, one of the future scenes, we do see that picture get destroyed in a fire. Um, so I think, I think John Connors is definitely setting this up. Uh, and, and even at the end, there's a bit of dialogue at the end where um, where Sarah Connor says, you know, I don't know how much when she's recording messages that she's going to give to her son when he grows up. She even says, I don't know how much of your own future I should tell you because I don't know if that puts that puts things at risk. 
Yeah, the, yeah, the classic butterfly effect. Uh, but this, but this is when we get the uh, this is when we get the only instance of female nudity. This is uh, this is when uh, uh, Sarah Connor and Kyle uh, they they have a really really kind of tender lovemaking scene with ha- with hands awkwardly placed, covering <laughs> up a certain amount of nudity, but not all of it. And and yet the awkwardness of the hand placement makes the scene seem more real to me. Yeah, there's a bit of fumbling. Uh, maybe that's because like his character is a virgin and doesn't really know uh, eh, what to do. <laughs> I don't know. Well, like, well beyond that, it, it it makes it makes the scene tender and vulnerable and not erotic. This is the one of the least erotic sex scenes I've ever seen, but I believe it's very intentionally so. I don't think anyone's supposed to be being turned on by this. Uh, right. It's um. It, it's nice you get you get that scene, and I mean, could you have done this movie without a, a romance kind of angle in it? Yes, but I mean, here it like serves like the plot, Barry, and and sets up stuff that, as it turns out, we'll see in the sequel. I don't think they made this knowing they would make a sequel either. Um, I well, uh, you know, it's funny you mention that. There's something I'm I'm going to save it for the end, okay. but I've got I've got a comment about exactly that. Sure. Um. So after all this, you know, you get to kind of a climactic setting it's like some sort of like a factory yeah the terminator corners them at the at the uh at the hotel they escape with all the pipe bombs that they made because uh kyle knows how to make plastique using mothballs and olive oil um which i i unfortunately did not have time to do research that, but i do know that this movie doesn't know how plastique works so I'm presuming that you can't make plastique with mothballs and olive oil. I mean, James Cameron was um, was never in the the military, and I recall on uh, in Aliens, he got a lot of shit for getting things wrong about how um, for making the characters Marines and having them act like goofballs, and really that would be more appropriate for uh, army people. Um, but, but I mean, anyhow, yeah, I don't know what, what kind of research they did or what they expected. I mean, was the um, was the anarchist cookbook a thing at that time? Oh, yeah, it, it, it was already out as, far, already so out. far as okay. I know. So, um, but still, it's um, and it, that he knows to, to make weaponry is, is convenient, but also makes sense because he's a, a soldier from the future. And um, a lot like Captain Power. Uh, yes, of course. Who can forget Captain Power? And the soldiers of the future. <laughs> Yes, J. Michael Straczynski, whoop whoop. Uh, but yeah, so there's a great there's a great scene. Uh, eventually, they get cornered in a in a in a, a factory which has a lot of automated uh, automated assembly systems, which which is really so appropriate uh, for for the ending of this film. Uh, and this is also where we get some of the most impressive special effects because we we've seen an actually really good puppet Schwarzenegger head. Uh, earlier in the movie when he's performing sort of repair on himself. Um, but something that I, I really, something that I really like is that when they blow up the tanker that the Terminator has stolen, all of his flesh gets burned off. And so from this point on, the Terminator is just a robotic skeleton and it's terrifying. But one of the things I love is that the, the sort of animatronic puppet they're using for the Terminator uh, skeleton it's still characterful in its movements. Like the Terminator has been significantly injured at this point. So it walks with a limp. It does those same stiff turns that uh, Arnold was doing, 
But it's just it's just that gleaming metal skull with those red eyes. It is so wonderfully terrifying. And then at the end, uh, James Cameron does a fake out, which he, you'll see him do this in his other movies too, where he thinks someone's dead, but not really. Um, where it's just like the the top half of the Terminator, the T eight hundred exoskeleton is still alive and is crawling desperately. Yeah, uh, I feel a bit sad for it at that point. Kind of. It's like, <laughs> See, I I don't because it's yeah. still going. It's still with murderous uh-huh. intent. But yeah, when, when when Kyle uses the last pipe bomb to blow the to blow up the Terminator and it just blows up its bottom half, that it's great. And the other thing I love is that like one of its hands is blown off and it's still using that like its wrist joint to drag itself along. And this is when we get something that I, I really like early on when they're in the factory. Um, Sarah accidentally bumps against a switch that turns on a hydraulic press. So she's the one who lands the killing blow on the Terminator, and she does it by outsmarting it. She crawls under the hydraulic press. So when the Terminator follows her, she hits that same switch and crushes it under all this pressure. I absolutely love that she she's the one who defeats the monster, and she does it by outsmarting the monster. And I, I think uh, that that's a, a winning moment, but it also makes you think that it took two people, one of them from the future, mind you, you know, several uh, several hours, several days to, to take down one T-800. And in the future, there's like hundreds of these things. Yeah, although, to be fair, in the future, they have uh, repeating plasma rifles. Yes, that's true. They have much better That makes it a little bit easier. And I, I'm sure the grenades are better, too. Um but it's just really one of those things like, wow, this is, it's the Terminator. It is just much like Alien was just Alien. It's just one of these. Um, but then at, at the end, you know, we, we see we see Kyle zipped up in a body bag uh, and the police, uh, the police, you know, t- take Sarah out of the factory. And you think it's going to end, but then there's this kind of nice little epilogue where she's in, she's pregnant, she's in a jeep, she's got a dog with her, she's got, she's got her weapons and she's recording messages for her son. Uh, and she stops at this gas station and uh, in Mexico, and there's this uh, Mexican boy there who who does a hustle to sell her a photograph of herself that he's taken. But that photograph, which was which she didn't know was being taken, is the photograph that Kyle has in the future. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great touch, great way to end it's, it. That's the last thing that makes it all come around. And as she's about to leave, you know, the, the guy who runs the gas station just just says, oh, you better be careful out there. A storm's coming. She says, oh, I know, and drives off. And you see those clouds rolling over the mountains, um, which is – and that's, you know, when the Ellison thing comes up, which is I, – I really – that I almost – every time I see the epilogue start, I always feel like, oh, this is too long. By the time the epilogue is done, I realize that this epilogue is necessary to close out the film. Um, it, it's the perfect counterpoint to that glimpse of the future we saw at the beginning of the film. But I said I had a comment about this being part of a franchise. Uh, yes. Uh, there has been so much – so much of Terminator exists post this movie that – it is always strangely shocking to me that when Sarah, uh, when the police take Sarah and then Kyle's body from the factory, the camera doesn't pan up and we see like a sign that says Cyberdyne assembly plant. Eh. Like it, it, it just it feels which is, which is kind of funny because a big part of this film is that, you know, Kyle traveling back in time is what 
creates the John Connor of his of of the future. We will find out in the second film that the Terminator traveling back in time is what creates the Skynet of the future. That they both they both in a sense created themselves. Right. It's um you know, looking back on it, I think it, it sort of sets itself up for a sequel, but doesn't not like in a cheesy way. You could take it either way, but it, it, you can. But if they had never made any sequels, you know, I think that the ending works perfectly well and makes you wonder. Oh, and you know, what happens when uh, John Connor gets older? Does do they prevent this future war from happening? Or and I mean, they in the Terminator Two, especially, they get much more into the mythology of. Um, the um the cyber dying and and the all the you know how how the computers become sentient the, and all these things the lore of the lore, uh, exactly. the lore of skynet yeah did you ever see the sarah connor chronicles tv show no i never did i i watched a little bit of the first season uh a while back i kind of wish i still had a copy of it and it's not bad i think the problem is that the t800 that is coming back into the present day to fight them isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it's someone who kind of looks like him. And I was just annoyed. I'm like, you should might as well go with someone that looks completely different. Mm, yeah. Cause it, it felt like we were watching like the direct to video. It felt like a universal soldier three or something. <laughs> like it wasn't quite right. And, and, and two, two things that, that do, uh, Stand stand out to me in in this film. One thing I just got to say: no lightning looks better than nineteen eighty sci fi special effect lightning, hand animated lightning. Yeah. Well, I, well, that's actually what's fascinating is this movie use whenever whenever the time warp happens and all the lightning flashes around. Was something else else I love. They communicate time travel with just wind blowing papers around and some lightning. Some of the lightning is hand animated. Other bits of the lightning is clearly taken from a Van der Graaff generator and uh, layered into the scene. Oh, it's superimposed. Interesting. Yeah, which um, is part of why it's so fluid and natural looking. Another, if you like eighties movies with lightning, um, uh, the Emperor in Return of the Jedi has good lightning effects. Oh, when yeah. He's attacking Luke, and, and how it wraps around him and stuff. Um, Big Trouble in Little China too. That that might be the best. Yeah. Howard the Duck, I believe, has some good lightning. <laughs> yeah, and some good, uh, uh, some good stop motion animation, which we do see some of the okay. Terminator yeah. effects are accomplished with stop motion, uh, which I, I do appreciate. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out, and this just this jumped out at me. So when um, when Sarah's roommate, uh, played, oh, played by uh, Bess Moda. Uh, who the character's name is Ginger Ventura, which I think is just a perfect eighties name. Uh, yeah, it sounds her, like something that would be on a T-shirt. But you know, she, you know, she and her, she and her boyfriend. She, they, we get to see uh, she and her boyfriend have sex, although you know, no nudity. Um, when they're doing that, they're listening to music. What they're listening to is like one note off from Peter Gabriel's "Shock the Monkey." That's funny. Um, and, and, and I know when sex, I make love, has... I want to listen to early Peter Gabriel. Well, because she still has the headphones well, post Genesis in while having sex, right? Post Genesis Peter Gabriel. What's that? She ha- she has the headphones in when they're having sex, right? I yes, yes, funny. she does. Yeah, and this is when Walkmans in, in '84 would have been a fairly new thing, um, where the price had come down. Where there you saw them all over the place, uh, and yeah, I think it was a nice. Uh, it's a funny 
moment. That's a good catch on, on the music there. But yeah, the, the Terminator, I would give an unqualified sequel yes to. I think much like the um, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, the older I get, the more I appreciate it for for its simplicity. And it I'm, just I'm with is, you 100%. This is a definite yeah. sequel yes for me. And uh, from that, we're going to pitch a sequel. And this is hard because there's been so many Terminator sequels. So, um, <laughs> What's your angle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my angle is uh, I would have it be uh, a story about how did they... Uh, it would be almost like a, a like a Frankenstein kind of story set in the future about the development of the very first T eight hundred, and the um, the body the the human look for the T eight hundred. Why is it Arnold Schwarzenegger? And it would be kind of a tragic story of of a man who volunteers for this program to get money for his family and gets these horrible torture things to him. And we learned that the first T-800 was um, actually part human. Huh. So, and, and you would have a very juicy mad scientist role um, that would be played by, you know, if this was made by the 80s, I would say like a Tim Curry or something. With with a lot of shrieking and... Um, the The final line of the movie would be... Like I'll be back, but it would be like in a in a different context, sort of a grim, a grimmer context. Maybe a grimmer context, like maybe he is sent to yeah, maybe that's it. Where, where the first T eight hundred, it's part human, part machine, because they haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, using like kind of like RoboCop, where it's like just the guy's brain and eyeballs, pretty much. And uh, <laughs> Cyberdyne sends him back to assassinate his own family because they can't know, because no one can know what the origin uh, of the T-800 is. But he would still be played by Schwarzenegger? Yeah, yeah, still be played by Schwarzenegger. And, like, he he would murder his own family and say, and, or he'd open the door and say, like, I'll be back, and then murders his own family, and then it would cut to black. So it would be oh, very wow. dark, I would call it, yeah. I would call it, like, a T-800 origins. So I want to do... Um... It's my my, own, my sequel, uh, I want it to take place uh, in the thick of this uh, future war. So we will see uh, John Connors. He'll be one of the characters. Uh, Kyle Reese will also be there. This will, of course, be uh, pre, uh, pre-time pre travel. Uh, and in fact, uh, a part of this movie will be Kyle being given the photograph and kind of being told stories of, uh, of, of John Connors' mother. But... It's, it's all going to be them doing commando stuff in the future. We're going to see the early you know, quote unquote, you know, decoy terminators that have the rubber skin before the ones with the organic coating uh, come out. But I want there to be some tension. So you're going to start out thinking it's a war movie, but it's not because a number of their missions end disastrously. And then it occurs to them, well, the only way these missions could have ended disastrously is if the machines knew what we were doing, which means someone is spying for the machines and what it's going to turn out is they are going to fu- they are going to kill one of the organic terminators and then they're going to discover oh ho- holy shit they can look just like us now and Connors is going to realize one of the men in his unit or possibly a woman in his unit is in fact a terminator but mm. i want it to have some depth so 
the term so to to make the infiltration possible, the Terminator does not know that it's a Terminator. Uh, it thinks it's a human being so that it will behave like one. It's only when it's subjected to very specific stimuli that it starts to act like a machine and sabotage the mission. Would it be a bit like the thing where they're trying to test to see if someone's like human or Terminator within the unit or that that will be part of it? But, you know, the, the, as far as, like, as, as we see in this film, like, the blood and tissue pretty much goes all the way down uh, to the bone. So, like, the only way you'd know for sure is if you cut someone down to the bone. But, you know, they're in a future where, um, it, where you know, they're used to patching up war wounds. But you cut someone open that deep, you're putting them at risk for infection. You are asking you are, uh, to do that test. You are asking everyone in the unit to take a very dangerous wound. Uh, and so that's where a certain amount of the attention, the tension is going to come from. How willing are they all going to be to prove that they are human? And maybe one of the the people that gets the test done too is is human and actually gets infected from the test. Uh, yeah, and very, very well might die. Right, and there yeah. and there will be a person who outright refuses to take the test. There's a panic. They get shot, and then they realize they just killed one of their own people. So there's going to be so the second half of the movie is going to be a lot of paranoia, and it is going to be heartbreaking because it's going to turn out that the one who is a uh, Terminator is one of John Connor's closest friends and allies. So it is going to be heartbreaking, um, especially when the especially when the Terminator realizes that it's not human and kind of has a mental breakdown, which is not something which is not an eventuality that Skynet was able to predict. What did you uh, what do you call this one? Uh, Terminator: The Testing Ground. Neat, I like it. Um, great. So, um, yeah, now we're going to move on to what you're watching. I've been watching, uh, you know, it was my birthday almost a month ago. Geez, but I'm sort of late in uh, spending a little bit of my birthday money. I saved most of it. but uh, So I picked up this big box set of uh, various Stephen King movies and miniseries. Um, and I was watching something on there. It was a series that... I believe it's the first time Stephen King did a miniseries uh, with an original script that wasn't based off of one of his short stories or books. Hmm. And unfortunately, the version that's on DVD is um, half the length from the original series. I think it originally was like eight hours and it's been cut down to four. That being said, I think the edit's still pretty good. I couldn't really tell any big gaps in logic. Um, and this is Stephen King's Golden Years. Hmm. Have you even heard of it? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, so the, 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 the setup, I think, is pretty effective. There's this... Oh, I forget what the name of the town is, but there's this um, super-secret government facility that has invested billions of dollars in these uh, top-level, top-secret projects. And uh, an old man that's a janitor there is... Um, they try to run this experiment on these mice, and it's, it's supposed to... Um, kind of like a fountain of youth machine it'll make people younger and i, I think the implications for military purposes but the the ray happens to hit the old man in such a way where he's not killed but he he just starts de-aging and it affects the relationship with him and his wife who's also in her 70s um hmm. and they're also and it ties into firestarter because the i think it's called the shop this kind of like government kind of spook agency um, is going around murdering people to make sure word of this doesn't get out and they're trying to retrieve the old man who was getting younger and younger. Um, so I think it's a pretty good setup. You know, cool. there, there's certainly some cheesiness. 
because um, it's Stephen King, and uh, it was um, it came out, I think, right after Twin Peaks started, and you get there, there's some of that Twin Peaks uh, perviness and quirkiness with the characters. But um, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought it would be unwatchable, and I'm actually enjoying it. I'm only about halfway through it. Very cool. And it stars a young um, Stephen Root as a major oh, in the military cool. who um, doesn't do a great job, but it was still fun to see him anyway. Hmm. What have you been watching? So I I, I went to a weird place uh, with what I've been watching. Uh, I ended up watching the complete 12-episode run of Dogun 5, which is the sequel series to The Ancient Dogu Girl, which is a Japanese action comedy series uh, created and directed by Noboru uh, Eguchi, who was the uh, creator of the movie Robo Geisha, which I may have discussed in the original sequel cast toward, towards the end. Is this a live-action show? Yes, it is It is a live-action show. It's 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 delightfully it's delightfully bizarre. I, I was gonna try. I was trying to watch um, Ancient Dogu Girl, but unfortunately, it's I can't find it anywhere. But strangely enough, the sequel series is very available online, um, and it's it's about a uh, the sequel series. It's about this uh, this young man whose uh, father is an archaeologist who went missing, uh, and. While uh, cleaning up at the house, uh, he finds he finds a woman buried in the garden, and the woman is this ancient uh, Neolithic monster hunter uh, who who gets her who basically is is dogu themed. Uh, and if you don't know what a dogu is, uh, dogu are these uh, Neolithic uh, they're, they're sculptures from Neolithic Japan. Uh, they uh, and you've you've seen them referenced in anime. There's a character in Dark Stalkers that's modeled after them, but they kind of look like a person in a spacesuit with these weird mechanical eyes. There's something very robotic about them. But anyway, that's her, that's her theme. Uh, and in this sequel series, there's a whole team of them because she was the last one that needed to awaken before the team could be reunited. And so they all move in uh, with this college student uh, and he basically kind of has to put up with them while they go around fighting monsters and being goofballs. So does it, uh, you said it's a sequel series. Does it, can you enjoy it without watching the original series or? I certainly did. I mean, the premise is, the, as crazy as the premise sounds, its execution is straightforward enough. Um, it, it, so far as I know, it doesn't have great continuity with the with the original series, except that the Dogu girl from the original series is the mentor of the Dogu team uh, in this series. Um, but like all the monsters are very over the top. Like if you've seen if you've seen like a, a, a lot of Power Rangers, this is like a slapstick comedy slightly sexy version of that. Uh, and on the monsters are crazy because they're kind of a mix of like traditional Japanese yokai and outrageous Sentai series villains. My favorite one being a man. He's, he's a, uh, the mo- the monster is a guy who dresses like a steward. His head is a turn of the century battleship. And instead of hands, he has two ship. He has ship anchors coming out of his wrists, but the spokes on the ship anchors are hands. That's pretty nutty. <laughs> it is absolutely crazy. But like the 
the violence is is hilarious. It's again, it's all it's all very slapstick. Every character has a pretty straightforward themes and personalities. I, I will say I could not find it subtitled, so I I watched it uh, with the original Japanese language with no subtitles. I barely know any Japanese, but it's not difficult to follow. Clearly, there's humor I'm missing because there there are characters that respond to things as if they're jokes, which I would love to know what those jokes were. I hope I can find this subtitle at some point. But uh, Dogun 5, The Secret to the Ancient Dogu Girl, I found very, very entertaining. And it's only 12 episodes, and the episodes are all like 20 minutes long, so it doesn't take too long to get through this whole uh, this whole series. Well, you know, maybe if you, you root around, you can find... Uh, sometimes there'll be text files of fan-translated subtitles that just have not been, uh, you know, uh, sub written up in the right format. You can follow along with a text file, maybe, of what they're saying. I don't know. Might be. That would be pretty annoying, but I guess that's better than not understanding. Um, it, so did this have any follow-up series after this one, or is this at the end of the road? Uh, it looks like looks like this is it. Okay, neat. Um what a unique premise. Uh, what else? Oh, the other thing I've been doing recently is um, there's a website I've talked about before called GOG, G-O-G, uh, dot com. stands for Good Old Games. They sell oh, old yeah. computer games that are made to work uh, on PC and sometimes Mac. And they recently uh, struck a deal with Blizzard, and they made it so you can get the original Diablo. Oh, cool. And so I, I've been playing that last night, and... Uh, I think it still holds up, but I also grew up with that game. So I, I can see if you had played the later Diablos or more recent action RPGs, uh, the difficulty would be a bit frustrating. Because you have the very limited amount of slots for your health potions, and when you level up, it's not a tremendous difference, and the amount of weapons you can get are pretty, the loot is pretty limited. But I, I kind of, uh, much like The Terminator, the movie we just discussed, uh, I like its simplicity, because it's just one dungeon with 16 floors and um it's a pretty short game i think it's it's uh about the same length as the first act in diablo 2 if i'm not mistaken oh god actually so the uh the comic strip murphy's rules diablo is mentioned uh in that and this is something that at the time where diablo if you your ability to use armor is based on your strength and one of the things i love about diablo in, in a quirky way is that your uh you were limited by what armor you could wear based on your strength. So if you weren't strong enough to wear a suit of armor, you could carry that suit of armor in your inventory, in your backpack, until you were strong enough to wear it. But you could carry up to three suits of armor. And, so I love the idea yeah. of a character who's strong enough to carry three around at I all can't times, wear it. but no, yeah. can't wear them. Well, and the... Um... It's interesting. The items in the shop, especially the good ones, which I think are called like premium items or something, uh, are randomized. So it might have a lot of stuff for sale, but it's nothing your class can use. I'm currently playing it as a, uh, oh, I like to say, I like to call her the archer, but that's not the right name. The rogue? Rogue, thank you. Um, and uh, I also have been reading the, the book uh, Stay a While and Listen, which is only the first volume is out, but it's meant to be a three-volume oral history of the Diablo series, uh, oh. and also of, of Blizzard itself to some degree. And that's that was a pretty interesting read, because Diablo was developed by Blizzard North, n- not the main company. Uh, it was a smaller company they had bought out. Oh, that's right. And um, th- there was some contention with, with the whole relationship uh, between the two 
Um, so anyway, good read. I, I just kind of rambled on for a lot. Anything else for you, Thrasher? Uh, no, no, that's, uh, that's it. There is something I'm in the process of watching now, uh, that I will, uh, that I will enjoy talking about next episode, uh, which does connect back to Japan. Okay, very good. Um, so next week, uh, we'll be talking about Terminator 2 Judgment Day, also just known as like T2 Judgment Day. Um, uh, that was back when everything was short. Uh, T2, ID4, JP, MIB. MIB, yeah. Um, I think, weirdly enough, the new Men in Black is just called Men in Black International, which I think is like the most corporate <laughs> title ever. Uh, if we want to talk about uh, like lazy titles, like the upcoming Terminator film, isn't like Terminator Dark Legacy or something like that? I believe it's Dark Fate. but um, Dark Fate. Yeah, that, that's, that's a name that was just, you could have drawn that out of a hat. Of title cliches. Well, what? What about Terminator 3 is Rise of the Machines? That's not much better. Yeah, but at least that implies action. I see. Um, Terminator, the silencer. I don't know. <laughs> the Terminator. I, I wonder if the title was, was inspired at all by the TV show The Equalizer. They have kind of a... Hmm. That was a random thought that went nowhere for no good reason. Okay. So, um, we need to do the sequel scene here. Why don't you set it up? <laughs> All right, so this uh, scene, we, we debated, because there's a lot of really neat scenes and really neat dialogue to, to, to play around with, but this scene uh, is the scene we mentioned earlier where, <clears throat> excuse me, where Dr. Silberman is talking to Lieutenant Traxler uh, and Detective uh, Vukovic and Sarah Connor trying to explain uh, Kyle Reese's delusions. And what character do you want to play? I would love to do Silberman. Okay, so that means I'll be. There's a lot of characters in the scene, well, so. Well, do you want? Do you want to be? Uh... I'll be Sarah. Well, so, well, I'll do. I'll do Sarah Connor and Silberman. Do you want to do the police? Yeah, I'll, I'll do Traxler and Vukovic. Vukovic. Okay, go. Here we go. So Reese is crazy. I don't know in technical terminology. He's a loon. Sarah, this is what they call body armor, or attack guys wear these. It can stop a 12-gauge round. This under-individual must have been wearing one under his coat. Feel that. Go ahead. What about when he punched through the windshield? He was probably on PCP, uh, broke every bone in his hand, and wouldn't feel it for hours. There is this guy once, uh, you see his scar? Thank you. (laughs) Oh, I love that bit. Yeah, this is back when you could justify anything by saying that somebody was on PCP. <laughs> yeah, it was either PCP or cocaine or... I mean, the thing I, I was really surprised in the 80s into the early 90s to some degree is you would have kids' movies where there'd be a subplot about their dad was a cop and having to stop cocaine smugglers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were, yeah, there were a lot of drug smuggling and diamond smuggling subplots in a lot of kids' in entertainment. In a lot of children's movies, yeah. It was, it was a different and, time. <laughs> and in, in, in the case of uh, Beethoven, illegal weapons testing. Well, I mean, now that we're speaking about sequels, as we always tend to do here in Sequelcast 2, I just one bit of uh, trivia I was reading that just kind of blows my mind. So they have a Lethal Weapon TV show, right? Oh, yeah. And in season two, after, um, for a variety of reasons, the actor that played, I always get the name wrong. Which character is the white guy? Is it Riggs or Murtaugh? 
I think it's Murtaugh, but okay. I, I'll admit, I don't even remember. Okay, let's, whoever is playing the Mel Gibson part, I don't even have the actor's name in front of me. He, he was fired after season two, so in season three, uh, you know, one of the main characters in the Lethal Weapon movie isn't even a character on the show anymore. They bring in a new character <laughs> played by Sean William Scott. And then uh, season three has been, uh, I don't know if it's wrapped up or it's wrapping up this year in 2019. And then it turns out that um, the actor that is playing the part of the uh, of the black cop, again, I don't know if it's Riggs or Murtaugh, uh, is threatening to quit the show. So that means you could potentially get a fourth season. Now, it hasn't been renewed, I think, for season four yet. Um but potentially, you could get season four of a Lethal Weapon TV show with neither Riggs nor Murtaugh. Do, do, do they have a Joe Pesci equivalent, keeping in mind that they could just get Joe Pesci? They do. It's not Joe Pesci. It's He he was one of the guys that wrote that book on screenwriting. That's like how to make... Oh, Thomas Lennon? I think so, Robert yeah. Ben I think Grant? it's Tom Lennon is a, the Joe Pesci part. Huh. But he's not a major part of the series, from what I understand. I've only seen like the the first few episodes of the show, and I thought, I thought it was okay. But I think it was weird because um, one of the main characters is uh, one of the Wayans brothers, and they almost make both parts comedic, which I think kind of defeats the chemistry. But anyway, Lethal Weapon. It's a TV show that's just a weird side off take. Uh, so next week we'll be talking about T two Judgment Day. Um, and, you know, if you'd like to watch along in the show notes, I'm going to start putting kind of, you know, the movies we have uh, coming up. So if you want to watch along, you can do that ahead of time uh, as you listen to the show. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And also, I'm surprised we don't do this more often, but uh, check out our sister show, In Trouble Again. It's oh, a yeah. uh, show where we review every episode of Droids, The Adventures of R2-D2 and C-3PO, the animated Star Wars oddity from the early 80s. Yeah, it's a limited series. We're um, almost halfway through it. I mean, sort of like when we did the one on the Critic, uh, all of that had more episodes. You know, Droids, I think, only had 13 14. episodes. 14. Does that include I The did- Great Heap? That does include the Great Heap TV movie. Okay, very good. So yeah, pretty short-lived, but a really entertaining show to, to go through, and it's on the same podcast feed. Um, but yeah, you can find that at SequelCast2.com. So for SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. Your clothes, I need them. But they fit so good on me. What character are you doing? I don't know. 